Hello and welcome to this special ACR preview podcast, which is brought to you by the Lupus Forum. My name is Ed Vittel. I'm at the University of Leeds in the UK and I'm the chair of the Lupus Forum. And today I'm joined by two of my esteemed colleagues, both from the USA, Professor Vivica Strand, who is an adjunct clinical professor of immunology and rheumatology at Stanford University School of Medicine, and Cynthia Aranau, who's a professor of medicine at Hofstra University and director of the Clinical Autoimmunity Center of Excellence at the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research in New York. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So in this podcast, we're going to discuss what we're looking forward to at this year's ACR. And this year, there is a lot of lupus content. We've captured my chair's highlights in the highlights brochure, which is available now on the Lupus Forum website. And you can find some additional key highlights from our discussion today from Vibica and Cynthia on a slide at the end of this recording following our discussions today. Between us, We've identified more than 100 abstracts across the conference, which cover a wide range of key topics and therapeutics. In this discussion today, we've tried to bring those together into themes um, so you can look at the interesting trends and orientate yourself to what you want to what you want to see. And as always, if you also want to be informed about key abstracts for rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and axial spondyloarthritis, then you should also have a look at the highlights, brochures, and preview podcasts for these diseases over on the Cytokine Signaling Forum. So Vivica, could I ask you to start to kick us off and tell us what you're looking forward to most at this year's Congress? Well, it is very interesting. I think there's a lot of new things, and there's some that we are gathering quite a bit of information about. There's a late breaker number 17 about Affymetrin, which is a new TLR7-8 inhibitor from BMS. And what we see is some positive data from a phase 1b trial in cutaneous lupus with the classy. And so that should be exciting. And I think we know there's another TLR7 inhibitor that is just starting. So that may be uh, a mechanism we should follow. Yeah. There's a great was, deal about CAR T cells. Yes. I, I was just sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say that both those TLR7 therapies, I really started watching them after that paper from Carola Vinuez's group came out mm -hmm. in, Nature Medsa, uh, in Nature last year, where she showed mm -hmm. uh, causal, this variant in TLR7 that was enough to cause lupus on its own, and it works entirely by double negative B cells. So it's, it's absolutely fascinating to see mechanism identified and then two therapies. You know, I agree. the other really important thing about this abstract is that we've been hearing for years from our germ colleagues that, you know, the drugs and interventions that we're looking at are in general lupus, you know, who happen to have some skin disease. And what was really neat about this is that we're now looking at patients who distinctly have uh, CLA cutaneous lupus, who may or may not meet full ACR or ACR ULAR criteria. So, I mean, I, I think that this is an important advance in terms of just CLA. Yeah. I, I agree with you. As a matter of fact, the OMRACT organization with lupus is working on also having a subgroup for mucocutaneous lupus for precisely that reason, 
because mm -hmm. we need different outcome measures in in those patients. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's a great deal about CAR T cell therapy in lupus. It was exciting at ULAR and it continues to be even more interesting <laughs> here. We have a lot of data from Georg Schett's group who have treated now 15 patients, nine with lupus, three with uh, antisynthetase uh, syndrome or, or inflammatory myopathy, and three with systemic sclerosis. Interestingly enough, most of them have continued to have treatment-free remission, although only some have expressed as long as one to two years. But based on the abstracts at this meeting, there seems to be really good outcome measures. There's a relatively low incidence of cytokine release syndrome, generally grade one or two, treated with tocilizumab, little to no ICANS. And interestingly, at this meeting, vaccination responses have been preserved, at least in the, the Shet group with lupus. There's a new abstract by uh, Novartis, a late breaker, as well as we've got data from Cavaletta and Kyverna. And so we know that quite a few companies in the U.S. are now pursuing this effort. And that should be very exciting. Yeah, I totally agree that, you know, when the first uh, publication came out um, last year from uh, Shet and his colleagues, I mean, it almost seemed too good to be true, right? And now, I mean, we're beginning to hear about sustained responses. We heard that, um, you know, patients went into complete remission, that autoantibodies went down, protective antibodies didn't, the, the vaccine uh, responses are fascinating. I mean, I think that this becomes you know, more and more promising as we look forward to, okay, how are we going to treat our patients and possibly get them into long-term remission? I do, yes. I, I, and I think it's exciting, but I also think that it may not be all lupus that is treatable by this mechanism. You know, that we know the, the, the genetics of lupus, the mechanisms of lupus, some of it is not innate. Some of it's not even in the immune system and whether resetting B cells is enough for, for everyone. But I do think it'll be right for some patients. Yeah, I think it, it, at least what we're learning so far is that by and large, it will be the refractory patients, those who've failed a lot of therapies because the B cell depletion is profound, although it may not be forever as we've already learned. And it's interesting to see what we're learning about that with these individual patients with quite a bit of heterogeneity. So we'll just have to learn. Yeah. Well, there's also exciting new data with the TIC2, Ducravacitinib. We know that it's approved in psoriasis, has positive data in psoriatic arthritis, and a nice positive phase two study in lupus. And what we've seen now from that trial is sustained responses by LL-DAS and, and even Classy 50 responses, and this and also improved PROs, which are quite nice to see. What's also important is that there appears to be an interferon 5 gene signature that may be a predictive biomarker for this agent, and that would certainly be a positive because I think we're all looking for 
those types of biomarkers in trying to select patients for these therapies? Yeah, you know, in, in looking at um, the uh, interferon gene signature, I mean, it's really bringing us a step closer to precision medicine. It's like, you know, which drug are you going to use for which patient? And if we had some good prognostic uh, markers, I'm, I'm, we're not there yet, but this is just one step closer and really interesting. And the other thing that I thought was interesting, I mean, there's a few TIC2 inhibitors in development, aren't they, of which ducravacitinib is the most advanced. Although on one hand, people say, despite the name, TIC2 is just another jack. But on the other hand, actually, it is felt that it is quite functionally distinct in exactly what it does, which cytokines it, it, it works on, and therefore hopefully also on the, the safety profile, at least from what we've seen in phase two. Yeah, well, I think that may be true specifically for, for ducrafacitinib in the context of how it binds, which makes it selective for TIC2. There's also brepocitinib, which has got a JAK1 effect. And so we'll have to see how that compares as it moves forward, as mm -hmm. well as with other TIC2s that you mentioned. Uh, there's also the sleek phase two data with upatacitinib, 30 milligrams. And it was also studied in combination with a BTK inhibitor. And after a, an analysis, uh, they continued the high-dose UPA and the high-dose BTK UPA and took that through to the endpoint. And essentially what they found is that basically most of the effect, if not all of it, is due to upatacitinib and not to the BTK inhibitor. And so they're moving into phase three trials with upatacitinib at that 30 milligram dose. Although it may be that after they've treated, they will look to do a step down to the 15 milligram. At any rate, there's some nice B cell markers that appear to indicate the mechanism of action of upatacitinib in this uh, population. So. We'll have to stay tuned and hope that the phase threes are going to be positive after a good phase two, similar with ducravacitinib. Yeah, the apatacitinib, that's, that's, it's great to hear that that seems effective and it's going through to phase three. But one of the biggest surprises in recent years is that the, none of the BTK inhibitors has helped. And I, I'm, I really would not have expected it. I have to say, I really thought they would work, um, but we've had a few, we had two, three trials now that none of them really seem to be showing any efficacy. Yeah, I, yeah. I, agree. I agree that that's been really surprising and unexpected, but you know, there's been either they haven't worked or they haven't added anything to you know, the, the results of studies. Right. Um, yeah. You know, going from phase two to phase three though is, always um, sort of problematic. And I am really, really hopeful because you know, the UPA data looks really amazing, but you know, there have been too many uh, trials that as I've gone from phase two to phase three, and most recently with uh, Barry, it, it just didn't have an effect when, we, when it was done in the larger studies. So fingers crossed, um, and maybe uh, this will be the charm. Yep. We can hope so, because we certainly could use an oral agent, another oral agent. At any rate, uh, there's quite a few abstracts about bulimumab. 
but I think we know belimumab pretty well. We've used it for 11 years. It has a nice safety profile. But this is a nice pediatric study, which essentially confirmed in about 25 patients that the PKPD that we see in adults is similar in kids. And that will be a very useful therapy for kids with lupus. So hopefully that will be another additional indication for belimumab. Right. So it was, I think after that, that, that's a perfect bridge actually with belimumab, a treatment that we're using now to go over to Cindy, your selection of abstracts where you try to focus rather than on new agents that are in clinical trials to focus on abstracts and talks that tell us about something we can do in the clinic right now. Is that right? Right. So, so precisely. So, you know, I usually go to these meetings in addition to trying to catch up with colleagues and former uh, trainees to learn about the new medications, but also, um, you know, what can I take home with me that might affect my treatment of lupus either now or in the near future? So there are a number of um, abstracts in terms of treatment of lupus nephritis um, in the, I think it was a Tuesday session. Um, and one was an abstract looking at the effects of high-dose corticosteroids, um, which is what we use conventionally, um, versus low-dose uh, corticosteroids. And this is looking at uh, placebo data from uh, completed uh, lupus nephritis studies. So uh, I think that this challenges uh, our, um, our uh, what we want to do and what we've been doing. Um, there's another abstract in this session that looks at um, cytoxan regimens for lupus nephritis and comparing the old uh, conventional NIH um, high-dose uh, reg regimen to the Euro lupus regimen. Um, and you know, as we know, using the Euro lupus regimen, there is much less exposure to this very cytotoxic uh, agent. And this is particularly interesting to those of us we treat a large number of patients of, of African ancestry because the initial studies that were done of um, using the Euro lupus were predominantly done in a Caucasian uh, population. So I'm really interested in learning more about that. Um, and those two are really top. Those are really topical subjects because I the EULA guidelines just came out last month. We did a podcast mm -hmm. on it. I was a member of it, and those were two subjects that caused a lot of debate. Um, mm -hmm. One is people, like you say, there are some people who say use zero lupus for everyone. Mm -hmm. There are some people who say in some situations you should use the higher NIH dose. And essentially the guideline still includes both options. Mm -hmm. I think to have a talk where some experts will explain how we how to decide would be very helpful and 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 steroids you know everyone's working harder and harder to say drive it down use less taper it when you can but there's still i think some concern about a couple of recent papers that have suggested tapering too much may lead to flares you know and there's a third abstract in this session that is also really timely and you know, also you know, relates to uh, the guidelines. And that's looking at um, therapies with or without uh, Baclosporin. So you know, it, it's comparing um, the ARMS trials to uh, the phase two Arrhenia trial and looking 
at, you know, in the arms, it was high dose steroids, high dose three grams of MMF versus the Velcro uh, trials that use lower steroids, lower MMF, but did add uh, Velcro. So, I mean, I think that these, each, each of these um, abstracts are going to teach me something, I hope that I'll then uh, take home with me. Absolutely. So, um, so I really like this session as I took a look, you know, and there's another abstract in this session um, that I think is a wake up call to anyone who is uh, treating lupus nephritis um, because, you know, yes. we're very used to looking at uh, urinary protein uh, creatinine ratios and looking at the response to proteinuria. And if there's a response, you know, patting ourselves on the back and saying, hey, you know, we've done, we've done a good job. And there's a um, abstract that looks at uh, renal damage, uh, loss of renal function after um, three years after it's, uh, in initiating therapy and compares uh, the urinary protein creatinine uh, ratio to looking at a number mm -hmm. of urinary um, biomarkers, um, six months and 12 months after initiating therapy and then looking at what happened three years later. And um, I think this abstract raises some really important questions going forward as to how are we best going to uh, identify the patients that um, perhaps need more aggressive therapy, that perhaps we should be changing therapy. Do you think that this is an important uh, uh, abstract to think about as we go forward in our treatment of lupus nephritis? As we have more options for lupus nephritis, we get more questions. And having too many therapies <laughs> to choose from is a good problem to have. <laughs> but then we have to decide when we're going to use them. You know, when, how do I know whether what I've done has worked? Right. When do I escalate? Right. When do I change horses? It's, you know, so it's, it's very timely to have this session, I think. Well, we need to remember that it took us a long time to get a functional outcome measure for lupus nephritis trials. So I don't think we're going to, shall we say, give up on it yet, but I'm not, I have to agree with you. I'm not sure it's really the way to follow patients serially. It's probably better to look for a response. And usually there we have a time frame, and we, we tend to monitor our patients a little bit more patiently when they're not in trials. I think that's true. Absolutely. Right, so there's a session that I'm really interested in, in seeing on Sunday, um, which is um, 12S111, and that's uh, lupus prevention and disease modifying anti-lupus drugs. And there are three lectures that are gonna be presented in this um, session, but I'm particularly interested in the second lecture on disease modifying drugs and lupus. And this is a relatively uh, new concept um, that was first uh, proposed in a um, paper that was published in Lupus Science and Medicine uh, last year. And the thought is that, is that we should be looking at medications at three points in time at the beginning, um, then at some point in their first five years, and then looking after five years, and looking to see um, if they prevent or slow damage, which is really important, seeing if they minimize a disease activity. And importantly, you know, as we've been talking about, 
you know, do they avoid um, glucocorticoid and other medication uh, treatment associated toxicities? And I think that these concepts are key as we're thinking about long-term approaches to chronic disease. And I'm really interested in hearing more about this and learning more. Um, so there are um, a couple of abstracts on another agent that's beginning to receive a bit of attention in lupus. And these are the um, SGLT2 medications, this uh, serum sodium glucose co-transport 2 inhibitors. And we know that these are efficacious in diabetes, not only to reduce blood glucose, but in terms of cardiovascular and renal outcomes. Um, and in fact, a recent paper that was highlighted in the monthly uh, lupus forum um, did look at uh, the, these inhibitors in a strain of lupus mice. So in Importantly, uh, this is a non-immunosuppressive treatment approach because so many of the medicines that we use uh, suppress the immune system, give our patients more, um, uh, more risk for infections. So there are three abstracts looking at SGLT2 inhib inhibition um, in the uh, ACR coming up. One is looking at adverse events in uh, patients with rheumatic uh, disease. Um, and diabetes, and others looking at um, efficacy and adverse effects, adverse effects of these inhibitors uh, compared to dipeptyl peptidase 4 inhibitors um, in lupus. And there's a um, third abstract from Hopkins looking at the potential benefit of SGLT2 inhibition in uh, lupus. So, you know, my renal colleagues have been talking quite a bit about these drugs, and I'm really interested yeah. in learning more about the preliminary observational data in lupus. Yeah, you know, it's, we were, I did the lupus nephritis webinar on the forum uh, a couple of weeks ago with Brad Rovin, Liz Lightstone and Maria Dallera. And we were all saying that these drugs seem absolutely magical in the things that they can do for lupus patients on top of immunosuppression and maybe even with some immunosuppressive effects. But there is a remark, there has been at least a remarkable lack of data that's actually yeah. Specific to SLE, it's for there's a lot of data for other renal diseases, other proteinuric diseases, and then we sort of said, well, we all do nephritis clinics. We, who of us have given them to our patients? And we all had. <laughs> so it just shows you the disconnect. We all want to use them, and we all we're all crying out for evidence to to guide what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so there were. An additional two um, non-pharmacologic abstracts that I'm really interested in, and they're related to questions that I'm frequently getting from my lupus patients. So the first um, is on the gut microbiome, which everybody is talking about, you know, and these are the bacteria that um, cohabitate with us and live in our um, intestines. So Greg Silverman and his group have been studying the microbiome in lupus for some time now. And they've previously shown us that there are differences in the microbiome in lupus patients compared to that of healthy controls. So they have an abstract that is looking at uh, lupus patients longitudinally, um, particularly at patients with lupus nephritis. 
and what he refers to as blooms or expansions of a particular yeah. bacterium, um, Rheumococcus navarium, uh, which I'm going to mispronounce, um, in patients with flares. So I'm really interested in learning about this as it begins to associate the microbiome, gut permeability, and perhaps some uh, new pathophysiologic mechanisms in lupus nephritis. So, you know, this is something that, you know, is not going to directly answer um, questions of our patients, but, but people and patients are interested. They definitely are. Yes, they are. Yeah. Now, and then there's another um, non-pharmacologic abstract, um, which is a mouse study, but it involves intermittent fasting. And so many of my patients are asking me about um, nutrition, but particularly about intermittent fasting. So this was abstract um, 2446, and it looked at intermittent uh, fasting in the MLR, LPR uh, mouse models, and then looked at the effects on cognitive function, uh, microglial um, activation, the nerve cells of the neurons, as well as the blood-brain barrier. And um, intermittent fasting did have beneficial effects. So it's not going to have any direct applications to our current treatments, but I think it's you know, really interesting and something that we're going to very likely be hearing more about um, going forward. Uh, and we're currently writing the, um, the, the a new British guidelines for the management of lupus. And so we obviously have patient representation on our, on our board that's doing it. And one of the things that came up loud and clear is patients want to know, what can I do for myself? What should I do with our, my diet? And we all said, we don't know. Uh, so it's like you say, yeah. people, ask, people are desperate to know, and yeah. the evidence just isn't there. Yeah, you know, and cognitive function and brain fog is such a common um, symptom in my lupus patients, you know, and I think that, you know, this is actually sort of interesting in that it, there may be a something that a patient can do um, yeah. that might actually have an right. effect. I, I, uh, yeah, That's, it's going to be fascinating. So I'll definitely be going to that one. So I'm going to finish up by going back to new therapies in trials and um what i i i decided to focus on the ones that we've heard about car t therapies but i had a look at b cell monoclonals because it remains a very interesting field um so where to start so um firstly i think we've heard a few times over recent conferences about abinutuzumab so this is like a next generation cd20 after rituximab and it's a type 2 cd20 which is more potent at b cell killing it's in two phase 3 trials in lupus nephritis in non renal lupus but there's a couple of extra bits at this conference there's an abstract that uh, that i i've authored with with rush genentech about b cell return so we know early depth of depletion is important, but B cell return can occur at variable rates. And that didn't seem to be too important, too important for some longer term efficacy and safety. And then there's another one um, in the nephritis data. It, it goes back to your point, Cindy, about you know that is 
proteinuria alone adequate as an end point and it, i know we use it that's how we license drugs but people want to know does that also translate to less renal failure less steroid use these kind of harder more meaningful exactly. kind of points so that's that's what they're analyzing there and i think it's in important to see this there's a last one uh, a non-pharma study on abinutuzumab which is something i'd also looked at a few years ago um which is that we use a lot of rituximab in my clinic but what you get is a lot of people get anti-drug antibodies in lupus and it stops working and actually in those people we found if you switch them to abinutuzumab it seemed to restore all of the efficacy and and there's a french study in 50 patients saying a very a very similar thing, which is quite relevant to practice right now, because abinutuzumab is available now off license. Yeah, very important. We've we've always said that you need to use an immunosuppressive with rituximab, but that still doesn't abrogate the immunogenicity. And it's something to do with lupus and Sjogren's who get that problem, not rheumatoid and ANCA, as far as I can see. So then... There's, yeah. a few, there's a few abstracts that are getting into the concept of BAF inhibition and B-cell depletion as a kind of combination. So there's there's an academic, stu- well, there's a couple of academic studies that have looked at this. One is beat lupus done in the UK and one is the Calibrate study. And these are two studies where they took rituximab treatment and then followed it up with belimumab treatment. And the beat lupus study of those did meet its primary endpoint in terms of lowering antibody titers and also preventing flares with the combination compared to rituximab alone but there's a there's an interesting story been emerging out of this for the last year that i've uh, it, it surprised me a bit so that the primary endpoint in beat lupus was double-stranded dna titers but they subsequently did a lot of biomarker analysis and one thing that's really coming out of their results is the iga2 double-stranded dna antibodies seem to be the ones that really matter if you've so IgA antibodies, numerally associated with mucosal immunity, if you've got them, you're more likely to respond to that combination, and the level of reduction in them um, seems to associate with how well you do. And in this abstract, they've then extended that study by taking the samples from the Calibrate trial and showing the same thing. Mm-hmm. It looks like it's real, um, and it's 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 a slightly surprising result, but once I think they. It, there may be potential to personalize therapy a bit based on that. Yeah, I mean, I I agree that you know the, the results are sort of surprising, but what it's telling us is that there may be a subset of patients within the you know huge heterogeneity of lupus that do respond very well to this uh, combination therapy because mm. you know the, the clinical trials just don't seem to. Um, bear that out. In addition to um, the Calibrate, there was a GSK's uh, Bliss Believe, and again, using very stringent endpoints that failed to meet its primary endpoint. Um, And um, there's also the Symbios trial, right? You know, that looked at um, Mm -hmm. uh, lupus nephritis and in very, but that was not controlled, but in which there were, you know, it seemed that there were very positive results. So I I think that this is still a very interesting approach to trying to treat um, uh, uh, severe lupus. Absolutely. And then 
And then if you like the combination of B-cell depletion and BAF inhibition, then the drug is Ianalumab, a Novartis drug. But this is an interesting one because it, so it, it, it's, a, it's a monoclonal antibody that targets the BAF receptor, which most mature B-cells have. But instead of, it doesn't just block signaling through the BAF receptor, it also kills the B-cell. So you may get both effects helping to block the pathway. And uh, there's a couple of abstracts at this conference. So there's... Firstly, there's the phase two randomized control trial in the Tuesday oral session um, mm -hmm. where they show there's potent B cell depletion, clinical response, less use of steroids, and it's progressing to phase three. There's actually a Sjögren's um, study as well presented at this conference, with the same molecule. Um, and there's also a... Um, abs a poster about EL in Alumab where they show mm -hmm. that as well as reduce, as killing B cells and reducing clinical responses, there's also some association with reductions in interferon gene signature, which yeah. is not right. what you would have gone for. But just like you, like just like you said, Rebecca, it's again, it's about we need these biomarkers to tell us who, who for which drug, and and how to know when the drug's working. And, and then lastly, just on the on my basal abstracts I looked at is that there continue to be um, some abstracts about new ways of inhibiting the BAF system um, uh, that look mm. interesting. So, of course, as as you said, Vibica, we're used to belimumab and we continue to get more and more good data about it every year. But the thing about belimumab is it only blocks BAF. And this is a system that includes two ligands, BAF and April, and they bind to three receptors that have a different affinity for BAF and April as the B cell goes through its life cycle. So the new the new generation of BAF blocking drugs are designed to block both BAF and April more effectively. One of those is the alpine drug, povitacicept, and um, they've got a they've got a poster where they actually did some 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 translational science to back up the, that the proof of that principle so in other words show that both BAF and April are overexpressed in lupus and the in vitro povitacicept could block both of them and uh, or, and, and showed in B cells that's a better in vitro that's a better way of inhibiting B cells and then the other one I, I'm not going to say it briefly because this is rheumatoid arthritis, not lupus, but we've all heard <laughs> in the last couple of conferences about teletacicept with quite seemingly quite impressive results in lupus. And they've actually got um, an abstract here with the same drug in rheumatoid arthritis, which couldn't be yeah. sure. Belemiumab right at the beginning of its development wasn't really effective in rheumatoid arthritis, but that's yeah. that's being claimed here. It's very interesting because uh, povitacicept is arguing that it actually binds April even more efficiently than teletacicept. And of course, we have this nice data from teletacicept and lupus, but only from China. We've really never been able to dig into the data uh, in great, great detail. And so I was surprised also to see an RA study uh, and yeah. was hoping to see more lupus work. But yeah. I think yes. the point is targeting BAF and April together really is a much more effective way of targeting the B cell uh, effects in lupus. 
Yeah, so the whole B-cell and, story could be summarized, whether you want to deplete them or whether you want to block back, it's always hit them harder. <clears throat> it seems to be. And it may be safer than depletion too, so. Maybe, yeah, it but, may. But it uh, remains to be seen, you know, in terms of toxicity, because right. of the toxicities are, you know, are fairly low. And I wonder what right. you see when you're blocking both bath and April. It, it Not only be. that, but you you are losing uh, immunoglobulin levels, um, and okay. so that has to be monitored. So we'll have to see, but it's always another mechanism which is helpful Absolutely. to understand. Good problems to have. So that's all we have time for, folks. I hope you've enjoyed this preview. The Lupus Forum has plenty more ACR content planned as the Congress gets underway. For a condensed overview of the most important abstracts presented each day, be sure to have a look out for our daily highlight videos. As always, after the meeting, the three of us are going to get back together again to broadcast our ACR Congress review webinar. And in that broadcast, we're going to have a talk about what we saw, the abstracts we've just been talking about, what we learned, and maybe anything we didn't expect that came out of the conference that should help you to catch up on what you missed. Don't forget to have a look at the website, have a look at the Lupus Forum, that's lupus-forum.com, and download our ACR 2023 highlights brochure, which has got all the details of all the top abstracts. And all that remains for me to say is enjoy the Congress.